The following is a message from Reverend Ken Belden of Wellsprings Congregation. What I'm going to share now to some of you is not uh, news at all, especially if you've ever gotten uh, an email from me or a Facebook message from me or a text from me at 1.30 or 2 in the morning. I resist sleep. I always have, at least as far back as I can remember. It's better now than it used to be. I have a few more meditative tools to be able to kind of ease myself into the end of the day. Uh, but it has been with me, this resistance to sleep, as long as I've known myself. My brother-in-law, my older brother-in-law married to my older sister, um, he's been a part of my life since the early 70s. And so when I would, at age two, three, four, go up to bed and the adults would stay downstairs having social time with each other, he could hear me uh, patting around upstairs on the floorboards, another, uh, another drink of water, another, another time for story, uh, another trip to the bathroom, uh, you know, just, just anything to avoid the finality of sleep for me. And with full respect and love for the religious tradition out of which I came, my brother-in-law took to calling me the wandering Jew. <laughs> Anything to avoid going to bed. And I recognized early on that I was going to need some help in this process of kind of letting the day start to come to a rest so I could rest in it. And one of my first lessons or first teachers, if you will, in terms of starting to take my rest, was this wonderful book. Ah, Good Night Moon. Some of you remember it from your own childhood. Some of you remember it from maybe last night and helping your own children <laughs> get to bed. I've always loved it. I've always loved it, this story of a child recognizing kind of everything in their environment and valuing it almost for its innate sacred quality, and saying goodnight to it so the child could say goodnight to the day. Comb and a brush and a bowl full of mush and a quiet old lady whispering, hush, hush. I remember the red balloon as well, too, and the cow jumping over the moon, but this goes far back to the point where I couldn't even say balloon, so for me it's always a red balloon. And... You know, the lessons of this book of kind of recognizing a place for each thing and being with, in an intentional relationship with each thing. For an anxious kid, for me, it was a true lesson in how to start to calm and to find ease. And it also provided me the first seed of insight into what Albert Einstein called the most important question that any of us can ever ask and answer for ourselves. And he said, we, we have to make the decision totally for ourselves. No one else can do it for us. But he said, the most important question is this. Is the universe a friendly place for us, or do we consider the universe to be an unfriendly place for us? And to personalize it a little bit more, do you consider the universe to be a friendly place for you or to be an unfriendly place for you? The truth is, is that we can find ample proof <laughs> in either direction. 
He said one of the reasons this is such a powerful question for us is that if we do decide, if we do fundamentally come down on the side that the universe is a fundamentally unfriendly place to us, he says our culture, our technology, our very lives, our energies will be spent in a quest for domination, setting up walls, divisions, boundaries, because life is unfriendly towards us. He said on the other end of the ledger, If we make the decision that life is friendly, that the universe is friendly, we will expend our energies, our technologies, our culture in the direction of building understanding and cooperation so that we're working with this life that is not hostile to us. It is a sad fact that so many, not all by any means, and certainly not all individual believers, but so many of the traditions of the world religious traditions assume that the universe is an unfriendly place. We hear this language from traditions that want to devise in this world or the next, chosen or unchosen, winners, losers, saved, damned. The problem with these kind of theologies is what they do is they end up being self-fulfilling prophecies. Because the more that we create and see the conditions of unfriendliness all around us, we will act in accord, thereby making the world a less friendly place for ourselves and other people. In many ways, too many traditions take to heart something that is a modern teaching. That can be quite fun in a lot of ways, but taken to heart can be profoundly damaging. And it's this. If any of you are fans of the show, I'm not judging the show. It's a fun show. Survivor. Outwit, outplay, outlast. Out, 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 out escape out. It is the opposite of what I'm talking about in this current message series, which is the power of with, which is not about looking to get out and beyond and escape, but about learning to claim that entrance ticket into the depths of each and every one of our lives. This sense of out, 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 it is so distinct from what is for me the heart, the beating theological, spiritual heart of our tradition, which is our universalist and are our universalist teachers. I hear the words of Hosea Balu, perhaps the most famous and well-known universalist preacher and teacher of the 1800s, and using words we don't use very often anymore, but I love them because they, they stick in the ear because they're uncommon for us. He says that God's will for humanity is that all of us would be happified. That divinity yearns for the happification of all humanity. That's a profound, life-transforming teaching, isn't it? Because it's not about the winners are going to be the happy ones and the losers are going to be the unhappified ones. That happification is the divine will for all of creation. Translated into our lives and our time, the search for happification is not the search for pleasure. It's not the search to get high. It's the search and the ongoing search over and over and over again, asking the question, what helps, what heals, what makes us whole? What helps, what heals, what makes us whole? This is asking a question about what happifies our life, especially because I know there's some of you sitting here right now that have had dreadful weeks. Maybe there's some of you who have had really painful lives. And so this question, is the universe a friendly place for for you or not, that can stir up some difficult emotions. 
And when we as a community, and when people beyond this community, and when we ourselves within this community, ask that question, what heal, what heals, what helps, what makes us whole? We are starting to answer that question, even if we can't quite say, yes, the universe is a friendly place for us. But we're starting to act in accord with that ancient universalist hope that, yes, the universe does not desire our misery. The universe desires our flourishing, our fullness, and our wholeness. That's why Einstein said this is such an important question, the most important question. I mean, I know all kinds of people seeking to change the world in all kinds of wonderful ways, and yet sometimes when I scratch the surface of their lives and I learn a little bit more about them, it's almost as if they are still running the old software of believing that the universe is profoundly unfriendly toward us. I don't think we can truly deeply get in touch with what heals, what helps, what makes us whole, unless we open our hearts to the possibility that the universe is friendly to us and does not desire our misery. It is a practice for many of us, and I will raise both my hands as high as they can go. It is a practice for me to learn about happification. <laughs> it is a practice that I have to over and over and over and over drill into myself because sometimes I will, reserve, I will revert to my old operating system that kind of really doesn't trust happification. This practice of making friends with ourselves and our life, it's a day in, day out, imperfect practice that ultimately does change us, ultimately transforms us. There's a woman named Jan Valone who at one point in her life was a, a corporate lawyer and became an English teacher. And she struggled with many years with the faith of her tradition um, about this God who seemed distant and out there and, and up there and always in a seat and in a position of judgment looking down upon humanity. And she struggled with many of its, um, its teachings on prayer because she was told prayer is a way to connect you to God. And, but she, the traditional teachings around prayer never worked. And yet she had this insistent recognition as she aged in her life that there was this relationship with the God of her understanding that was compelling for her and rich for her. And she had to explore if she was going to be, in our words, happified, if she was going to grow and flourish. And perhaps in midlife when the perfection of our imperfections, <laughs> the wholeness of our imperfections comes home to roost for many of us, she comes to an understanding of what her faith is for her and the fact that it does transform her. These are her words. She said, in these moments of feeling this real relationship, I'd catch my breath at a tangerine sunrise and whisper, thank you, God. Then be moved to smile at everyone I saw on the street. Or I'd be startled by an ambulance siren and think, God, please let that person live and then be prompted to write to my aunt who's had a heart condition for years and is ailing. Or I'd shriek at my daughter who once again burned something on the skillet and wince thinking, God, why am I so testy? Then be spurred to take my daughter out for lunch with the two of us. So while I can't sense the divine beyond the clouds out there, 
I feel God close and clearly in unexpected moments like these, moments of awe, joy, fear, sorrow, or contrition. God captures my attention in these moments. I cry in recognition, and I feel a surge of heart. I respond with acts of love, often in spite of myself. I love that last line, often in spite of myself. We don't have to feel great about ourselves to respond with acts of love. Hell, I woke up today not even feeling all that good about myself. It happens. But it doesn't mean the acts of love are barred from any of us or for any of us or with any of us. These acts of love are voting with our feet. That even if we can't quite say with the full understanding of our minds, yes, the universe is a friendly place, that we can vote with our feet through these acts of love and help to make the universe a more friendly place and in that way come to believe that it is not hostile to us and we are not here to live in misery. It reminds me of the, the song we just did, I Love You and Buddha Too. It reminds me of our great spiritual ancestor, Thoreau, and one of my favorite teachings of his. Uh, it was perceived by some of his relatives, some of his relations, that he was starting to study the works of the Buddha. And this was not looked upon kindly by some of his relatives who started to judge this fact that he was maybe leaving what was the acceptable spiritual terrain of his time. And he says, I know that some will have hard thoughts of me, and yet I wish that they would love their Jesus even more than I love my Buddha. Or he said, it is the love that is the main thing. I love you and Buddha too. It is the love, the fundamental orientation of the heart, to the holy, to the sacred, to the divine in our midst, that is the main thing. We don't need to have all our theological questions sorted out to act with acts of love. We just need that wholehearted commitment that is a full-bodied commitment as well, too. One of the things I love about the writer we just heard, that she describes this relationship as being an embodied response. The tangerine sunrise, the smile on her face. The burned skillet taking her daughter out to eat. That ambulance that goes crying by in the night and we wonder who is suffering, bringing her thoughts back to write the note to her aunt who she knows is suffering. These acts of love help us feel our withness with all of it and to invite us to befriend our lives. Awe, wonder, contrition, forgiveness, penance, pain, joy. They're here if we just scratch the surface of our lives. And we know that they cry out for our acts of love and response. The song we did earlier today, Everything is Holy Now, where the title of the message today comes from, Walk It With a Reverent Air. Walk It With a Reverent Air. Well, we've been doing a whole bunch of songs. I mean, what, 200 songs since we began here, at least in our songbook. Uh, some had staying power and sticking power, and some we did once and said, no, thank you ever again. And <laughs> it doesn't mean they weren't good songs. They just didn't work in this context. But I have to tell you, it's holy now that more of you over these last seven years have come to me and, and said, thank you. You are playing my song. <laughs> you are playing my song. 
this arc of development, of spiritual development, perhaps if you grew up in a tradition in which it was not original blessing, but original brokenness that was taught to you, and you were taught that you were originally broken or condemned or judged, or you were asked to leave your questing, questioning brain at the door. Everything is holy now is for so many of us our song because we know we are fully invited into this process of happifying our lives. This is the power of with, of working with what is here, if as we believe in that song, which is an answer in the affirmative to Einstein's question, everything is holy now. Then we can walk it, walk this with a reverent air, our lives. There's a woman named Diana Butler Bass who writes about the changing, rapidly changing, transforming, and in some ways upsetting changes in American religiosity and spirituality in our time right now. And the fact that actually serving a spiritual community, a growing spiritual community, is rare these days. She talks about three B's, three words that begin with B that describe uh, what makes for spiritual community, what makes people want to join spiritual communities. And she says the, uh, the ranking of each of these three words that begin with B has changed over time. The first, she would say, was believing, which may be 50 or 60 years ago. What do you believe? There was no belief-o-matic that you could take online, but you say, oh, I'm a Presbyterian, I believe that, I'm going to go there. Well, in our time, belief for many people, not just in progressive spiritual communities, but also in more traditional spiritual communities, belief is more open-ended. Many people who are non-fundamentalist have an understanding that their beliefs are going to evolve and change and grow over time. And so belief alone is not sufficient to creating the conditions for a healthy spiritual community. It's important but not sufficient unto itself. The second she describes as belonging, connections, so important. We're social creatures. And yet, belonging, if it's kind of like a nativist immigration policy, where we get in and we find our way in and then we close the doors behind us saying, I got mine, you all go somewhere else. Belonging is not sufficient because if we define the health of our spiritual communities according to belonging, then we're going to create social clubs. So belonging is not sufficient unto itself. And she adds the third B and the one that is for me by far the most powerful B as in behaving, our behavior. Not behaving as in you better behave or you're going to get a whack. Not that kind of behavior. You're going to get in trouble. The behavior that talks about virtue, that talks about committing acts of love day in, day out, as imperfectly as we might commit and share these acts of love, behaving as befriending. This is how we create the conditions of a friendly universe. This befriending is how we most powerfully practice the power of with. It is why I believe for all the changes going on in American spiritual communities throughout the world right now, why spiritual community, especially those of us who are willing to, will adapt and grow and change and will remain vital. Because we need the places to believe and grow our beliefs and we need the places to belong and know that we are held in connection and nurturance and we need the places that are going to help us behave as the people that we really yearn to be. Because if you're anything like me, sometimes that's not the easiest thing in the world. Reminds me of a story I heard not too long ago. And I, I like to situate this story in like uh, New England many years ago. 
uh, someone, uh, uh, the two people involved in the story, not the hyper kind of verbal person that I am. They're kind of like New England people, real taciturn, you know, a couple words. And, and this is a story between a pastor and a member of the congregation who just hasn't been around for quite a while. And the pastor decides one night, winter's night, cold night, uh, not too hard for any of us to envision right now what a night like that might be like to go to, vis- uh, go to visit this recalcitrant parishioner. And because they're New Englanders and they don't talk too much, they don't want to make themselves too vulnerable. The parishioner opens the door for the pastor. They come in and they sit down and neither of them says the first word. They just sit there in silence looking at a roaring fire in the fireplace that the parishioner has. So finally, the pastor gets up, walks over to the fire, poker in the fire, and removes to the side, away from the fire, one of the embers. And then comes and sits back down. And the two of them in the same New England kind of silent silence sits there and watch, watches as this ember loses its spark and grows gray and then finally grows cold. Neither of them says a word until about 15 or 20 minutes later. Pastor says, okay, good to visit with you. I'm ready to leave. And walks back over to the fire, takes the poker back out, and scoots that ember, which had gone, had gone dry and cold and gray, back into the fire itself. And just watches it as that fire begins to burn and blaze and be lit up again. And the parishioner, who to this point, remember, has said nothing at all, says, uh, Yep, I'll see you next Sunday. Now, this is not to, I don't say this to like guilt you, you got to come to Wellsprings. No, no, it's about something, although I believe you should come to Wellsprings. I'm not going to argue you out of that, certainly. You're here, you're with. That's what the power of with is about, is recognizing all the ways in which the fire, the furnace, the burning of that inner divine spark is lit because of our connection with each other. And so on this seventh birthday, I want to thank you for being here, whether it's your first time, whether it's your hundredth time. I want to thank you for being here, for being with, for your availability, for your accessibility, for your vulnerability, for your mutuality, for your accountability, for your desire to be here and with right now. That's why spiritual community will continue to be vital here at Wellsprings or anywhere else. There are so many different ways to describe what spirituality is or isn't. My least favorite forms are always the ways in which spirituality is made into a noun. I am a spiritual person. Actually, technically, I guess that's an adjective. Uh, But you get the point. It's like a possession. I have spirituality. That makes it a noun. But it's not a content. It's not a possession. Spirituality is a way of being. It is a way of response to this life. And this is my preferred definition of spirituality. It is the awareness of the presence of relationship that calls us into a relationship of presence with our lives. The awareness that wherever we are and wherever we go, there is the presence of relationship, of the withness that calls us into a relationship of presence with our lives. This is befriending. This is voting with our feet so that our universe becomes an increasingly more friendly place, especially for those people who perceive it as unfriendly or it has been unfriendly to them. This is answering with the acts 
of our love and of our lives. And it can transform all aspects of who we are, from our closest companions, our intimates, our friends, the folks we know here at Wellsprings, all the way up to the cosmic sense of connection, of belonging with this universe. Because at sometimes I think we might all have these moments. I have them at 3 o'clock in the morning, when maybe I've been asleep for an hour or something jars me awake. And there's that sense, am I alone in the universe? Am I alone in the universe? And at that moment, I try to recognize the wisdom of those who have had a particularly special relationship with the universe. You might have heard some of these stories of people who've gone into outer space and having seen the earth from the perspective of the moon or from the perspective of orbit. It's, a, it's remarkable how many of these stories there are from our astronauts that something shifts in them profoundly. And they start to question all these borders, all these boundaries, all this aloneness, all this isolation that we can experience in our lives. And so Russell Schweikert, who was on the Apollo 9 mission, says this, when you go around the earth in an hour and a half and go around the earth, you begin to recognize that your identity is with that whole thing. Our identity is with that whole thing. Our whole lives is with this whole thing. And we recognize today that our whole lives are bound up with the whole. And recognizing that we are bound up with the whole, with the sorrow, with the love, with the sadness, with the joy, bound up with the whole of the whole. So do our lives turn in the direction away from brokenness, and into the form of original blessing that we already are. May we be a friend today, and may we know in our being a friend that this life and this universe is befriending us. Amen. May you live in blessing. Let's pray together. God, whose name is written in the acts of love, Spirit, may we recognize the tendencies of our own lives, our own culture, for the out and the up and the away. Because as much as we might want to get out and up and away, there's the other truth too, which is that none of us get out of here alive. And so in our time, when we practice and live with the power of with, recognizing the pain, the sorrow, the joy, the love of our companions, these people with whom we break the bread of life. May we recognize the tears in the eyes of our compatriots and in our own as the sacred offering back to life to its sorrow. May we hear in our ears the joy of laughter and of song and join our own heart song and laughter to that raucous echo of life coming to know itself in deep and original blessing. Amen. If you enjoyed this message and would like to support the mission of Wellsprings, go to our website, wellspringsuu.org. That's wellsprings, the letters uu.org.